church. It is such a joy and so humbling to be with with you again and, and to be able to bring you nourishment from God's word. Our text this morning is Psalm 14, if you would turn there with me. But before we get to Psalm 14, even as we have just prayed, thank you. For the sake of my own little weak heart, would you pray with me again? Father, we thank you that you are a good father, that you give us everything that we need and everything that we need in your word to live lives that please you. Lord, thank you for this privilege of, of bringing your word to your people this morning. And you and I know how unworthy I am of this. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and bless your name, Jesus. I pray that despite my great weakness, your word would speak, that your people would be fed and encouraged and built up. I pray that your name would be lifted high and that you would be glorified. It's all for you, Jesus. Amen. Before we get to Psalm 14, I wanted to tell you a little story about the importance of perspective and the difference perspective makes in our lives. Have you ever been faced with a challenge that you know is not going to be easy to get over? It's it's something that's going to take time and it's going to take hard work. But you're willing to do it because you see its importance and so you work at it. But sometimes when when the goal that you're working for doesn't come through right away, If you're anything like me, you might tend to get discouraged. You ever face that? It may well be human nature. I struggle with this. But never have I been as keenly aware of this in my own heart, in my own life, than when I see it reflected in the attitudes of my progeny. We're using that word on purpose, just hoping it goes over some little heads. When I see it, a little one just struggle with a challenge and want to give up, and and trying to motivate that little one is is not easy, is it? And um, I think, I suspect that this is because of a lack of vision, a lack of perspective in the little vision that little ones sometimes see. But this isn't a new issue, this isn't a new problem for humans, is it? 2,600 years ago, more or less, give or take, Aesop was writing about this. Do you remember Aesop? He wrote some fables. There was one about a hare and a tortoise. This, this is supposed to represent a race. There was another one that was really famous uh, or popular, I thought. Uh, it was one about a grasshopper and an ant. Ever heard that one? Basically, there was a grasshopper, and it was the summer. And the grasshopper was making hay while the sun shines. He was singing, and he was laughing and dancing and just enjoying the summer. But there was this little ant And she was just plodding. She was working hard. Every day she'd get up and go find food and bring it back to her house to build up a larder. And the grasshopper would see this ant working so hard and he would look at the sun and he would look at at just the beauty around him and he would laugh and mock the ant. But the ant just kept plodding away and plodding away and plodding away. Then came the fall and food started getting scarcer. And the grasshopper didn't have as much time to play and and have fun anymore because he was hungry. And then came the winter, and the grasshopper was cold and starving while the ant was safe and snug in its home with a full pantry. And eventually, 
the grasshopper died because those ancient Greeks lived tragic lives. Perspective paid off for the ant, didn't it? The ant saw winter coming, and the ant knew it had to do something about this. And so it worked hard, and it lived a completely different life from the grasshopper because it kept the end goal in sight. Fast forward to around 10 years ago. I'm a young dad. I have a a one-year-old, and I'm trying to learn as much about parenting as I can, as one does. And, and back then, TED Talks were huge. Do you remember TED Talks? Ideas worth spreading. Maybe they're still around, and I just haven't listened to them. But TED Talks were huge. And I listened to two on parenting that were pretty memorable to me. Each one talked about a different quality that was super important to try and instill in our kids. And so I tried to do that. The first one talked about a quality that the author termed grit. The ability to stick to to things when things get hard, the courage, the perseverance, the discipline not to give up when the going gets tough, even when the going gets really tough. The second one was deferred gratification or delayed gratification, the ability when you have a test tomorrow not to watch TV all evening today because you know that even though TV will be more fun than studying for a test, the result of the test and the result of the the course is a greater reward. And so you put off fun today for something better tomorrow. Or instead of going out three or four times a week and having as much fun as you can, you stay home and save up for tomorrow because there is a greater reward that could be won. And so grit and delayed gratification were two qualities, according to these experts, that were some of the greatest indicators of future success in children. Two qualities that were important to grow up with. And I suggest to you, church, that God's word says the same thing about these two qualities. Over and over again in God's word, these two qualities keep showing up. Grit, the ability to stick to something and not give up, even when the going gets tough, and delayed gratification. But there's a third quality we see in God's word that brings everything into place. Without this third quality, even grit and delayed gratification become worthless. And this third quality is perspective. The ability to see the end result, to see what you're working for, with as close to reality, as close to truth as possible. We see this a little bit in Aesop's tale, don't we? The ant worked hard. The ant delayed her gratification because it saw that winter was coming. And the ant, even despite the mocking, despite the discouragement of seeing others enjoy themselves, the ant just stuck to her duty and She was rewarded. Perspective paid off. Let me me show you why I see these in our text this morning. Would you read with me Psalm 14, please? The fool says there is no God is the title I have in my uh, Bible here. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, 
that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Church, what the psalmist presents for us today is a contrast between two very different ways of living. One is foolish, short-sighted, and completely self-focused. To push a metaphor beyond what it should be pushed, think of the grasshopper. The grasshopper lived for himself. The grasshopper lived as if summer was all there was to life. But the other is different. It calls for grit. It calls for delayed gratification. But most importantly, it's built built on right perspective. And these two lives, I suggest to you, God's word suggests to you, are ever a choice between before people living in this earth. But perspective, having that right perspective is indispensable to making this choice well. And so our big idea this morning is this. Keep perspective. Don't live like a fool. Keep perspective. Don't live like a fool. So who is a fool besides your average grasshopper? Our first point this morning answers this question. And and the point is, fools live for themselves. Like the grasshopper, fools are arrogant. Like the grasshopper, fools are brazen. Fools are totally focused on themselves. Fools live for themselves is our first point. Do you see that in our text? Look with me again at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Church, in our modern understanding, we, think, we tend to think of fools as people who maybe are not very smart, or maybe they're goofy, or maybe they're just silly, and slapstick ensues. This is our modern understanding, but this is not the biblical understanding. Same word, but different meaning. The biblical understanding of the word fool, which is especially addressed in wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and such, is not one of uh, ignorance. It's not one of silliness. It's one of wickedness. The core characteristic of the fool is an attitude that says, I know better. I can do it by myself. I need no one to help me, and I want no one to hold me back. This, biblically, is a fool. Last week, in looking at Psalm 13, Pastor Aaron mentioned or quoted a little verse from a well-known poem called Invictus. You guys know this poem? Invictus was a poem by William Henley, written in the late 1800s, and it's not very long. I'm going to read the whole poem for us, if we may. Here it starts. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. So there's this deep pride, this deep self-sufficiency in the poem. There's a disregard for God. Whatever gods may be, the, the point here is my soul is unconquerable. Let's continue. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. And so trials may come, tribulation may come, pain may come, but I can grit and bear it. Bear it. I am tough, is what the poem, poet is saying. 
Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. So death is coming. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I am so tough, even death doesn't scare me. This is the last hands of the famous one. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, life may be full of pain. Life may have trial. Life may have suffering. But I have the freedom of will to pull myself together. If I can grit, if I have character, if I have the strength and find the strength in me, I can overcome the trials of life. And I need fear, not even death. And this, this poem, Invictus, which means unconquered, invincible, this poem along with Rudyard Kipling's If, which is a poem I loved when I was 13, I memorized it. These two poems written in the late 1800s came to symbolize the British Empire at the height of its power and influence. And this poem points to the ideal British gentleman. This is what a man was, someone who had grit, someone who persevered through tribulation, someone who didn't give up. Now this attitude, these, these traits aren't bad, aren't they? It's good to persevere. It's good to have grit. (laughs) But where this poem goes wrong is that like the British Empire at its height, it assumes a world without God, or at least a world where God is distant and unengaged. This poem lacks perspective. And so all this hard word, all this grit, all this toughness becomes turned completely inward. Initially, it was for for the betterment of mankind or for the betterment of the British Empire. But humans being corrupt and sinful as we are, very soon, it's the betterment of me. And my life becomes about overcoming adversity so I can get ahead or my kids can get ahead. It's all about me. And this attitude, church has even become a virtue in our culture beyond Nike and Olympic advertising. We are heirs not only to the English language, but to the culture, the commonwealth of the British Empire. But this attitude is exactly what the Bible means when it speaks of a fool. This attitude lacks perspective. Fools live for themselves. Don't live like a fool. There is a God, church. We are not orphans. And this means that our lives are not about ourselves. Our lives are not to be lived for our betterment and for our advancement. But lacking this perspective turns even good qualities like grit and delayed gratification into warped, twisted, self-centered versions of themselves and ultimately makes them worthless. Do you see that in the text? Look with me at verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Ultimate truth is that there is a God. He is the creator. He is sovereign over all, and it is his plans and his purposes that will prevail But what he's looking for is not self-made women and men, not paragons of virtue, not examples of grit and determination who overcome obstacles and succeed in advancing themselves. In fact, from God's perspective, this is laughable. 
God is our Father. It's not like we are orphans. He delights in providing for us. He delights in answering prayer. What God is looking for is men and women with perspective. Men and women who hear the claims and the promises of Scripture and who believe, who come to Him in faith, in perspective, and live lives of humility and faithfulness to Him. This is the life God blesses. Do you see the difference, though? It's like night and day. One life is lived completely for self, the accomplishments and the praise of this world, to, to go back to our fable, one life is lived as if summer was all there were. And the other life is completely different. It's a life lived for God in obedience, in selflessness, fearing God and realizing how small we are and how desperately we need Him. Not that we don't work hard. Not that we don't persevere. Perseverance, grit, they're hugely important to us. But ultimately, we live for Him this is the life God desires. Now, the thing with foolishness is that foolishness is seldom contained within fools. People, when we adopt this attitude, become like resources to us. We humans are so prone to corruption that what starts out as a fight to overcome obstacles and a fight to overcome trials eventually becomes a fight for me and for how I can get ahead. And when people get in my way or when people can be used by me, they just become resources. Do you see that in verse 5? Sorry, verse 4, read with me. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? People become like resources when we live in a world without God. Resources to be consumed that we might increase or obstacles to be done away that we might not be hindered, that our agendas might prevail. In a world without accountability, survival, my survival, the survival of my progeny, becomes supreme virtue, as if we were orphans. And this is absolute foolishness. However unafraid someone might be right now, the truth is that death does come, and it comes for everybody and worldwide pandemics, and wars, and disasters, and financial crises, and recessions, and cancer, and sudden accidents are little gifts of God's grace that open windows into reality, that show us how weak, and how little, and how desperately we need God. Master of my fate, my foot. But when your life is built in a worldview that rejects what is fundamentally true, a good and sovereign God who made us. However well we start, we end up with warped lives that are twisted and turned in on ourselves. And when the terror comes, when these little windows into reality come, we have nothing beyond ourselves, but our resources are so meager that we end up terrified, which we see in verse 5. Read with me. There they are in a great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Christian, how are you living your life? You may be sitting here in church this morning. You may be singing along to the songs. You may know how to appear well on the outside. God is not interested in appearances. God is looking to your heart. How are you living your life? When push comes to shove in the secret place where no one else can see, are you living your life for God 
or are you living your life for yourself? Does the fear of God, the fear that God sees everything we do in the dark and that one day we will stand before his throne and we will give account for all of it, does the fear of God keep you running to him, clinging close to him, living, to him, living for him, or are you living your life as a functional orphan, as a functional godless person? Are you living your life for yourself? Fools live for themselves. What Scripture tells us is so clear in the psalm. Fools live as if summer was all we had. Keep perspective. Don't live like a fool. In contrast to this foolish lifestyle, to the self-centered lifestyle, the, the psalmist raises up the righteous. And so our second point this morning is the righteous take refuge in God. But who are the righteous? Would you look with me again at verses 2 and, excuse me, two and 3? The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Church, I don't know about you, but my instinct is to think of the righteous as those who practice righteousness, those who do right. And what the psalmist says here to us, though, and what Paul quotes in Romans 3, 10 to 12, and applies to all mankind, is that no one does right. There is none righteous. This is not Adolf Hitler and Idi Amin. This is you and me. This is everyone around you. This is everyone who's ever lived. We are corrupt. We fall short of God's perfect standard, which is holiness. We are as unrighteous as grasshoppers. So who is righteous? Actually, there is one. See, what Scripture tells us is that holy God through history has looked for men and women who, have, who would turn to him, who would follow him in perfect commitment and holiness, and he found none. But this raises a dilemma for God, because God, above all things, is holy, and he requires holiness from his creation. And he is the creator, right? See, you make a pot, and the pot is cracked, and you make the pot to hold water, and the pot leaks every time you put water in it. What good is that pot? What would you do with such a pot? I would destroy it and make a better one. God is holy, and what Scripture tells us is that all of us, by embracing sin, falling into sin, slipping into sin, running towards sin, all of us incur punishment. And the punishment that a righteous and holy Creator requires of His creatures who fail to meet the standard He created them for is destruction. Winter is coming. But God isn't just holy. God is loving. And in his love, God has made a way out for you and for me. 2,000 years ago, he sent his son to be born of woman, to be born a baby, and to live as a man. And he, Jesus, lived a perfect life, a life marked not by sin, not by corruption, not by selfishness, but by perfect purity and holiness, selflessness, and love. He is righteous. The only one in all history, Christ is righteous. But Jesus didn't just come down to earth to live a perfect life, 
to show us the example we could never meet and to live warm sayings for us. He came down specifically to lay that life down, to lay it down as a sacrifice for us. God in his infinite love, in his perfect wisdom, in the sovereign workings of his plan, sent his only son to live this perfect life, the only life in history that does not deserve punishment, and then to willingly and lovingly lay that life down on the cross, offering to take the punishment you and I deserve. And what Scripture tells us is that any of us who turn to Christ in faith, who admit that our way is wrong, that God is righteous and that God is right, who come to Him renouncing our sin, turning away from our sin, and who follow Christ, any of those of us, Christ imputes His righteousness. He gives His righteousness to us. We can take shelter and refuge not because of our righteousness, not because of our goodness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Who is righteous? Jesus was the only one. You and I are not, but he offers us his righteousness. And the psalmist understood this. What he writes here is that we are all corrupt in verses 2 to 3, but he points to something different in 4 and 5. Would you read with me? Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So is he suggesting here that evildoers, us, we who are unrighteous, should still call on the Lord? He is, actually. Verse 5, there they are in great terror, but God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, the, the unrighteous, the evildoers, would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his, the righteous one's, refuge. And David, who wrote the psalm, saw this. This is where we get the title for our second point. The righteous take refuge in God. They call on Him. They trust in Him. They rely on Him. They hide in God. Not because they're more deserving. Not because they're better. Not because they're blameless or virtue, virtuous. But because they fear God and they have the right perspective. The righteous run to God and take refuge in Him. And through all scripture from Genesis 4 on down, Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, what we see is that though all humanity is unrighteous, though all humanity has turned away from God, there has always been a remnant who despite their unworthiness, despite their unrighteousness, have chosen to call on the name of the Lord. And God has blessed them and given them mercy for their faith. Now how does this work? David, who wrote the psalm, also wrote Psalm 51. And he wrote that psalm after he had messed up big through rape and murder, which then gets called out and found out, and he gets confronted about it. And when he, what he writes in Psalm 51 is that sin and evil is woven into the fabric of his being. From the time of his conception, he was sinful. But what he also writes in Psalm 51 is of a God who is gracious and merciful, who when David confesses and turns away from his sin, God blesses him with mercy. God blots out his sin and his transgression. God creates in him a clean heart. Not that he deserves it. He's still a murderer. He's still a rapist. But God is merciful, even for people like him, even for people like me. And you and I, Christian, are called to do the same. If we would be righteous, we must 
take refuge in God. The refuge God has made for mankind is his grace poured out in Christ. It's only in Christ that we can take refuge. In Christ, you are righteous. Who are the righteous in a world filled with corrupt people? All who take refuge in Christ are righteous. The righteous take refuge in God is our second point this morning. And our third point and final point this morning is the anchor that gives us perspective for our lives. Reckoning is coming. It'll soon be winter and all of us must give account for how we have lived in the summer. The wisdom of taking refuge in God, even if it means we get consumed by evil men, even if it means that our plans and hopes and aspirations are dashed by the evil and the powerful, even if it means, like Abel, like in Genesis 4, that for being righteous, we get marginalized, or we get vilified, or we get persecuted, or more, as God's people have always been from the beginning of history. The righteous take refuge in God because they know that a reckoning is coming. And this gives us perspective on the wisdom of running to God rather than ourselves, of trusting in God rather than in ourselves. Living a right life comes from this perspective. Reckoning is coming. Would you read verse 7 with me again? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. See, the the perspective that the psalmist is taking is, is of God's people as a little people in the midst of more powerful, evil people. He is talking about a restoration because God's people for most of their history have lived as exiles and strangers. This is how Peter refers to us. This is how James refers to us. We have lived in the midst of darkness. And yet God in his word word makes huge promises of coming restoration and coming vindication for those who put their trust in him. God's word refers over and over again through the prophets to the day of the Lord when God's plans get ultimately fulfilled, when the righteous are rewarded and when the evil are dealt with. And some of those promises have come true. They came through 2,000 years ago when the perfectly righteous man lived the perfectly righteous life and laid that life down for you and me on the cross. And some of those plans came through in the church in Pentecost when the church was born and men could be born again. And the church has been advancing for 2,000 years into every continent, into every country, into almost every people group according to the plan of God. But there are some promises in Scripture that have not yet been fulfilled. God's kingdom has not yet perfectly been established. God's rule has not yet perfectly been put in place. And yet the promise is that this is coming. What Scripture clearly points to is that Christ will return soon. And when He does, He will fulfill all his promises. He will set all wrongs to right. Justice will be finally and fully established. He will restore the fortunes of God's people. And so salvation has come to, to, out of Zion to God's people on the cross. And salvation has come to God's people out of Zion at Pentecost. But salvation is yet to come fully for God's people when Christ returns. But remember, there are two ways to live our life. One is for, the, for ourselves, and the other is taking refuge in God. And on that day, 
the ultimate consequences for how we are living today will be seen. And how we live our lives today will determine whether that is a day of weeping for us or whether that is a day of rejoicing. Perspective changes everything. But this isn't just for a warm winter at home. This isn't just for survival through another season. This is for eternity. If you are listening to this message this morning and you have not yet come to Christ for refuge, then I urge you, don't live like a fool. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter how good or how bad you think you are. You are as unworthy of God and of his grace as I am. But God is not looking for your worthiness. He is looking for faith. He is looking for the humility and the trust to believe the claims and promises of this word and to live our life that reflects that belief. Winter is coming. And all those who seek him, who turn to him for refuge, will be saved. I urge you this morning, turn to Christ. And to be fair, there may be some of us here today who might have grown up in churches, who might have at some point prayed a prayer or made a decision. But this is not what scripture is pointing to. Turning to Christ is not a one-time event in the life of a person. Turning to Christ is the Christian life. What the Old Testament points to in the new covenant, the covenant that we live in the age of this church, is God's spirit being poured out on people, transforming our hearts, taking away hearts of stone and giving hearts of flesh, taking away hearts that desire to go our own way and giving hearts that desire to obey. This changes everything. God's word talks about it as new life, being born again, being made a new creature. It talks about a complete transformation beginning inside us. If this is not the reality of your life, friend, I urge you, call on Christ. Call on Him until He makes this a reality. What he, His Word promises is that everyone who calls on His name will be saved. Praying a prayer is not guarantee of this. Making a decision sometime in the past is not guarantee of this. Living a life of constant turning to Christ is what this looks like. Church, as Christians, we are constantly bombarded by sin and temptation, by trials and terrors. But Christ continues to be our refuge. When we are tempted, we turn to him for strength. When we sin, we turn to him for forgiveness. When the trials and tribulations of this life threaten to discourage, besiege, squeeze, or batter us down, we turn to him, our strength and our champion. The Christian life is a constant turning to Christ. There is no way to live the Christian life apart from living it in Christ, abiding in Christ, constantly running to Christ as our refuge. This world is ruled by foolishness. The wicked prosper. Evil men advance. And God's people are often consumed. This is the way it has been for thousands of years for all of recorded redemptive history. In this reality, I urge you, keep perspective. Don't live like a fool. With God's word, I urge you, turn to Christ. Praise God for his grace.